0: All right, well guys, um, good to see you, good to see you, good to see everybody. Um, we are in our second week of um, our sermon series called Post-Resurrection. So looking at what, the, what, what in the world did Jesus do for 40 days after he rose again? And oftentimes what happens after big events typically is lost and drowned out by the big event itself. And so today, last week we actually looked at Peter's uh, not Peter's, but um, Thomas's encounter with Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at Peter's encounter with Jesus that leads to a healed and restored heart. Some of you have come this morning and you need healing and restoration because of guilt and shame that you've experienced from the past. And hopefully by God's grace today, you would have an encounter with Jesus that will set you free Um, and allow you to really step into God's given call over your life. So, if you have your Bibles, I would love if you would join with me to, um, we're going to look at John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17 together. John 21, 15 through 17. And this is what it says. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved, deeply affected in his soul, saddened, because Jesus said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Encoded in these encrypted words is Jesus' restorative act on a heart that was riddled with guilt and shame. We're Americans, and so as Americans, we know what guilt is, right? Guilt is experienced when you and I when you and I don't measure up to a standard or an expectation that we or someone else has put up, for our, put up, right? So if we say we're going to meet someone at 6 PM, and we completely blow it, and we forget, and we're um, watching Wheel of Fortune at home, and then we get a text at 6.30 saying, hey, where are you at? You promised that we're going to meet. And I saw you write it down in your calendar. And afterwards, how do you feel? You feel really bad. You feel guilty. Do you feel shameful? Yeah. Yeah. Our culture doesn't experience shame as much because we are an individualistic society, right? As individualists, the I matters more than the we. Now, when you go to other countries that are more collectivists and the culture around Jesus' time, The I is trumped by the we. And so places that are more collectivist, they experience shame. Shame is guilt on steroids. Shame is not just I've transgressed an expectation or a standard. But because of my decision, it's affected my family, And it's affected the name of my family. And therefore, my family now has bad standing in the community. And therefore, they can't get jobs and they can't get loans. And everyone distrusts them and everyone doesn't like them. Could you imagine? I mean, if you cause that on your family, now your family is screwed because of your decision. You feel shame. Shame is this deep, profound feeling of unworthiness. It's not just I screwed up. It's I'm messed up. I have no worth, I have no value. It's shame, shameful, right? I grew up in a shame culture, right? As well as an individual culture, so I kind of navigated both places. Most of us have grown up not in a shameful culture, but a guilt-ridden culture. To understand scripture properly, you have to understand that this is a collectivist society during Jesus' time. They are experiencing not just guilt, but shame. Peter is dealing with shame. Peter feels like the ultimate Loser. I mean, he just feels like there is no more purpose in his life. So where does Jesus find Peter and the rest of the disciples, even though he's shown himself to him a couple of times? When people have really messed up in life, where can you almost guarantee that you'll find them again? They're back doing the things that they were doing before they felt like they had some footing on life. An alcoholic find Jesus, gone through AA, just feels really good about their lives, and then they do something that just triggers them and they feel so much guilt, what happens? They drink. Is it because they're a bad person? No. Because they're so wounded and the only place that they know can give them some sense of stability, and it's somewhat familiar, is the tavern. So they go there. It's not because they're bad, it's because they're broken. Peter and the rest of the disciples, guess where they're found? Found fishing, right? If you've ever been to Westport, right, and been around people who fish for a living, um, how do I say this? They are not the most cleanest, morally speaking, of people, right? <laughs> they're usually driving their boats out there with a big cigarette, right? And just just very colorful words and very colorful story. What are you going to do after this? Well, I'm going to go to the local pub. It's where my family gathers. They're going to do life there. The disciples are back fishing. They're not catching anything. All night, they throw their nets, gather their nets, throw their nets. They're not catching anything. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, from the shore, and they don't know it's Jesus. What do they say? Jesus says, throw your net on the other side. Guys, the sun's starting to peak. It's not the best time for their time of fishing, right? Some people's fishing, but not their time. And then they catch so much fish that their nets are about to break, but it doesn't. And it amazes John. That's why he includes it. And for those of you that are like, this gospel, these, these are just fictitious stories made up. Listen, why do you account for, I don't know how many fish there were, there are hundreds of fish, right? Why do you count the exact number in a story unless it was true? Right? These details show that you're an eyewitness. We know that eyewitnesses, they don't, eyewitnesses don't think linearly, right? When you're arguing a point and you're trying to fool the judge, you think linearly. When you're an eyewitness, you think of this, and then, oh, that's feeling, and then, and then that's sight and then this thing happened, and you're just all over the place. You give this random detail, but for you, it's not, because you're right in that space reliving the experience. All the Gospels are eyewitness documents. So they catch a hall, and they bring it in, And then Peter's the one who recognizes that this is Jesus. So what does he do? He gets out of the boat and he starts running. Peter had another encounter when he saw Jesus and he heard Jesus. But this time, when he got out of the boat, something miraculous happened. Why didn't Jesus walk? And why wasn't Peter able to walk on water the second time? I don't know. Right? That's another sermon. But he didn't. He ran to Jesus. And guess what Jesus does? Guess what Jesus does to a man and to disciples who are brokenhearted, who have lost their sense of meaning and direction in life. He doesn't start off with having a counseling session. Guys, he cooks some breakfast, and it wasn't from the fish that they had. Jesus brought the stuff. He cooks some breakfast. Have you have you wondered why is Jesus cooking them breakfast? There's guys. There is something, and everyone will say amen, That there is something when someone texts you and someone picks up the phone and says, hey, will you come to my house? I'm cooking dinner. Would you come for a meal? Unless there's something bizarre going on in your life, you're like, yes, we will be there. What can I bring? And the best is nothing. Just show up. And you go in the house. You just hit with this aroma of oven-roasted potatoes with some thyme and rosemary, smelling the garlic, and you're just like, wow. And you know it's a home-cooked meal. You feel invited into that person's space in their heart and in their life. This is why we've said ever since the beginnings of when we started church, like, we've got to cook for people, right? And if you can't cook for people, you order for people, right? But we want to make sure that we're feeding people because feeding and feeding the stomach does something to the soul. And it's not until they're stuffed that Jesus then does the deep surgical work of removing the spiritual cancer and tumor from Peter's soul. And this is where we begin. Jesus says... To Peter. And I want you to notice, we're going to look at some details here. He doesn't address Peter as Peter. Because remember, back in chapter 1 of John, Jesus calls Peter and the disciples, and he changes Peter's name. Because your name represented who you were in your intended destiny. Peter was given the name Peter cephas which meant in the Aramaic rock not a pebble and it's upon you and your ministry Peter that the church is going to be built of course it's on the foundation of Jesus but Peter was going to continue what Jesus was doing in Jerusalem he's the rock right i mean man, that's that's a great nickname to have like right? rocky rock boulder cement right foundation right You you wouldn't want straw, right? Clay. I mean, these are strong words. But notice how Jesus addresses Peter. Guys, it's in the text. He addresses him. Simon. Simon. This was the name his parents gave him. This is the name that represented his fisherman's life, his pre-encounter with Jesus, his foul-mouthed life, his dirty-minded life, his just... I'll, you know, I'll make the best out of it. And notice, when Jesus comes to restore people, principle one, he meets them exactly where they're at. Where is Peter emotionally? He's riddled with guilt and shame. Purpose and meaning, he's just not sure. He's embarrassed. It's hard for him to show face in this community. He's just doing the best that he can to get by. Any of you felt this way before? I mean, I have when I've really screwed up. And notice Jesus doesn't go and he doesn't say, hey, he doesn't give him a pep talk. My rock, my rock. He doesn't do that. Simon, he meets him at his level. Why? Because Jesus is more interested in engaging the soul of where it's at to bring it from a place of here of lowliness to a place of restorative, I guess, highness. He meets where he's at. He he doesn't initially call him out. He calls him by his old name because that's what Peter feels. He feels that he's a Simon. He feels like he's more like dirt than he's a rock. Guys, when we're dealing with people who are really fragile and broken. You deal with them where they're at. I've wondered for a long time, when you deal with somebody who's transgender, they were born male, have taken estrogen, and now appears female, how do you address them? You address them where they're at. But that's not truth. Well, truth is addressing them where they're at. If they like to be called, if they like to be called whatever i'm thinking whatever name like a, all your names are popping in my head so whatever name right you just address them right well what about somebody who has a mental disease and and is schizophrenic and and believes that they're jesus yeah, they're jesus at that moment right you're like but, but but that's not the truth but but there's also another truth which is meeting people where they're at and eventually hopefully it'll get them to a place where their heart will feel safe enough to really open up. Peter, or Simon, son of John. And he says, Do you love me more than these? I don't know if you guys remember, but Peter, he, he was the man of action. And if, if, there, if you look lined up all the disciples and you were to determine which one loved Jesus the most, most of us are going to be like, it's the, it's the one who really kind of risked it all. Peter was, he was a risk taker. His first one out of the boat. Peter's the one who cut off the Roman soldier's ear. Peter's the one who, I mean, he, he, he's it. He's, he's a leader. First in line. And so, Peter, do you love me more than these? What, what is Jesus referring to? Well, we have a big net of fish there. We have the disciples and the band of brothers that are around the campfire. And Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than your family? These brothers, do you love me more than them? And He looks at the fish, and he looks at the success, and he looks at the family business. Peter, do you love me more than your job? And I think Jesus could have extended it out and say, in our day, hey, do do you love me more than your health? Do you love me more than your future security and your retirement plan and savings? Do you love me more than your calling? Peter, do you love me more than all these good things that are out there in the world as gifts offered to you? Do you love me more? And you know what Peter would have said in the past? Heck yeah, Jesus. Because look at me. Jesus, I took faith. I stepped out of the boat. Jesus, I'm the one who cut off the ear. Look at Jesus. You know that I love you because of all the things that I have done. Look at my life. It rings true to how much I love you. But notice how Peter responds. He doesn't say, Jesus, look at what I did. He says, you know. Guys, this is profound. There has been a major shift and a transformation that happened in Peter's heart. Because oftentimes, the way that we measure how much we love God and how much God loves, for, loves us is by how much we haven't sinned and how much spiritual good we do. So if we did a Bible study, we're, we're, we're giving financially, we're meeting people outside of Sunday and we're loving them, listening to them, cooking them a meal, and things are just really going well, you really feel love, don't you? And you really feel like, man, I'm really loving God. And Peter understands that love, whenever it's attached to your actions, alone isn't pure. And so Peter says, you know all things. Actually, that he says it the third time. He says, you know, you know Jesus. You know that I love you. And yes, guys, in the Greek, it's mentioned phileo. Do you phileo me? Do you agape me? Agape you? we can go there i'm not going to go there in this sermon right jesus's response then is then i want you to was it tend my sheep or feed my feed my lambs what 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 but but he's a fisher man he's not a he's not a shepherd so what is he talking about here he's talking about spiritually because you know jesus had a big following and who are discipling, who are going to pastor all these Jews? It was Peter's calling. But Peter is so riddled with guilt and shame, he's like, man, I denied Jesus three times in public. Like I feel, so, I, like I just need to hide. How can I, what? How can I feed them? How can I spiritually give them the word of God? How can I preach into their souls? How can I counsel them and give them Jesus? He says, I, I brought shame, shame upon his name. You can't make this up. Guys, what Jesus is doing here is, is profoundly brilliant. Peter doesn't even know what's happening. So Peter gets asked again by Jesus, Jesus, do you love me? And Peter's response is what? You know that I love you. And then Jesus says, no. I want you to tend my sheep. First time, Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Jesus says, all right, it's time to preach again. Second time, Peter, do you love me? God, Jesus, you know I love you. All right, it's time to leave that church again. And Peter's, he's like, what? But Jesus, I had a moral failing. Like, I really screwed up. I mean, the the, the rest of the Christian community, they're like outing me and saying, I can never get back into public ministry again because of what I did. And then the last thing comes. Jesus says to Peter a third time, and this time Peter's grieved because he thinks that Jesus doesn't believe in him. Peter, do you love me? And notice Peter's response. You know all things. I love you. And Jesus says, Then feed, feed my lamb, feed my sheep. Tend to my flock. This third time he's saying, it's time to get to work. Peter didn't do a single thing, in terms of ministry, in terms of pastoring, that he could have gone back and said, "Yeah, yeah, I really, I really helped that person with inner healing," or, "Man, I, I really did a great job of providing exorcism for this person and making them free." Nothing. He solely depends and says, Jesus, you know all things. Here's where the transformation happened. Peter was always looking to his works to validate God's love for him, like many of us. But for the first time, it switched. He now sees God's love for him as a validation that he's lovable and that he's loved. Jesus, you know all things. When everything's stripped away in my life, all the successes, all the accolades and achievements, when all that's gone, which it is now, because I screwed up, and there's just embarrassment in my life, there's one thing that remains. It's your love for me. And because of that, I love you. My question to you guys this morning is, If the things in your heart and the goals and the ambitions and desires were stripped, what lays at the bottom of your soul? Is it a deep appreciation and love for God? Because remember, Jesus says in the last days, all these things are going to be burned up. So your achievements, your accolades, all all these great things, they're all going to be burned up. And what's going to remain? If God looks deep into your heart and puts his hand and he pulls up the thing that's at the very bottom, is it going to be his love for you? Peter finally got to a place where that rang true. That my God loves me. Before he believed God's love is contingent upon what I do for him. He didn't realize... And guys, he couldn't realize that God loved him unconditionally until he had the moral failure. Until he was absolutely wiped out in that rock bottom. He didn't he would not understand that God truly loved him not because of what he did for God, but because he was an image-bearer of God. Period. And because of that, he was restored. He was restored to ministry, he was restored to his calling because it was no longer about his calling and his ministry. Do you guys hear this? He was restored in his passion, his calling in life, because it was no longer about that, but it was now about Jesus. Guys, um, some of you know our journey. As we planted church four years ago and emerged last year with Cameron's Church, God has done something amazing this last year. Right? A few people of you know, and I'm going to tell you, for all my life, I didn't realize, but my identity was so tied into church and being affect people and to help them change, right? Part of it is I'm kind of wired that way, but then a part of it is dysfunctional because I think that by doing it better and having more opportunities, that it shows that God loves me more. And so... Having a church plant, but the church plant never getting over, like, 25 in average attendance after four years. What do you think that will do to someone's soul when they base a lot of their identity upon numbers and ministry success? So I have my question, does God really care? Like, what about all these other churches that are blowing up on day one? Why does he care about them more than they care about me? Like, like, I, I... I've done more than them. I have more experience. Like, Lord, that, that makes no sense. It's finally, it's only to a few months ago, God has just brought me some, to, some deep stuff, deep stuff. And now, it's not, God, why? Why do we only have like 25, 30 people? Now it's like, God, thank you that we have this many people. And here's the thing. If ministry success was experienced early on in the church, somewhere i probably would have had a major crash because it was all about me in god's grace and providence he saved me from me (laughs) right and i'm like wow i didn't do god in terms of like success as a pastor numbers wise ain't ain't very good god right (laughs) there's other churches that boom like 100 overnight oh wow and so I hate the question when people ask, us, oh, so how long have you been church planting? How many people do you have? Uh. <laughs> but now I know that God, even despite our church not growing in the way that I wanted it to, I still find God's favor. And I realize it's not about what I've done for him. But he loves me, and he loves you because he loves you. I mean, when was the last time you guys were able to sit in that reality? That he loves you. Despite your failings. Despite you not measuring up and making expectations. he He loves you. And he doesn't love you like your mom or your dad loves you. He loves you unconditionally. And you're probably wondering, when Peter was denying Jesus three times, where was God in all of this? And when Peter was in that state of depression, where was God in all of this? He's right Rabbi Peter. St. Peter, you denied me. It's okay. Because <laughs> there are reasons why you denied me. And, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it doesn't Wipe me out. Peter, it's okay. Peter, it's okay. And he couldn't believe it. Well, and then he has this encounter with Jesus. Finally, he's like, wow. I love God. I love Jesus. How do I know that? Because of the love that he has for me. Your failings in life does not determine and measure God's love for you. There is one work and action that determines it. It's that while you were in your guilt and shame and in your depression and in your mistakes and failures, God gladly surrendered and gave his life for you as a sacrifice to show you that his love is not contingent upon how well life goes, but it's contingent upon the fact that you are his child and you are his image bearer. He loves you. He loves you. Guys, he wasn't ready to do ministry. He wasn't ready to live into his call until he knew who he was. I'm a child. I'm a beloved. I'm a lover of Jesus. It's when he realized the course and the trajectory of his life forever changed. Peter had many blockages to knowing God's love. Peter's main blockage what it was his determination and his desire to just do, do. He was a doer. Until he got to a place where he realized he could not do anymore. Would God still love me when I'm at the end of my limits and ropes? When he found out the answer was yes, everything changed. He loves you he loves you, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. What you did last week doesn't change the fact that he loves you. What happened to you when you were five years of age, it doesn't determine how he loves you. He loves you, he loves you, and he never departs from his love. You're like, but what about that time when I walked away from God and I was really living in rebellion? He still loves you. And his heart and his affection for you has actually grown. How do I know this? When you have a child and a child is very, very difficult and they decide to go away... You think about that child more than you think about any other child that you have. You pray more about that child than any other child. Why? Because you love that child. Their disobedience, their sinful actions do not determine how much you love them. But something strange happens. When they go wayward, your affection and love for them even deepens. That's God's love for us. You can't escape it. And this is the bedrock and the foundation from which we live our lives and we go and we restore and we love people loves you he loves me he loves me he loves me despite knowing the things that i do and the things that i think and what i say he loves me he's not happy i can see sometimes i'm shaking his face saying kevin 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 but he loves me he says kevin i will never leave you forsake you we will do this journey together until this is straightened out in your life and in your life he's the best daddy you could ever have It was upon this foundation, Peter's brokenness and discovering that it's not about works, but it's about his love and grace, that the church was built. You want a new you? Built it on the foundation of his love for you. How do I get there? Well, let's talk to leaders. It's a process. We're going to take communion. I'm going to ask Mike to come forward. In this communion time, I want you to imagine yourself the Sea of Galilee. It's the morning, the sun is starting to break. Jesus is cooking some bread, pouring some wine. And he says, Come, come do a meal with me and get to know me and let me begin to touch your heart. I want you to capture, have that image captured in your mind and come forward during this time of communion. That Jesus is inviting you to himself so that he can touch you, so that he can feed you, and he can just love on you. Amen? When you're ready, you come forward and partake in the Lord's Supper together. At New City Church, all of our communion is offered as gluten free. Ken, the body and the blood of Jesus given for you. The body and the blood of Jesus given for you. Susanna, this is the body and the blood of Jesus given for you. Kelson, the body and the blood of Jesus given for you. Beth, the body and the blood of Jesus given for you. Mary, this is the body and the blood of Jesus given for you. this is the body and the blood of Jesus given for you. Thanks be to God. Antonio, this is the body and the blood of Jesus given for you.